0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr. Alison Pulio. Alison is a fungi expert, a natural historian, an ecologist, and a photographer. She joined me to discuss her new book co-authored with Tom May. It's called Wild Mushrooming, A Guide for Foragers. We talk all things about the kingdom fungi, as well as what to do when you go out on a foray or forage for mushrooms. This is an extended version of our conversation that went to air. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with me, Amy Mullins. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome back onto the program, Dr. Alison Puglio. She is the co-author of a new book, Wild Mushrooming, A Guide for Foragers, which she co-authored with Tom May. Now, Alison is an author. She also wrote a book previously called The Allure of Fungi. And her background is as an ecologist and an environmental photographer, which seem like very well-aligned professions to be in. And uh, I think this book, which has been published by CSIRO Publishing, called Wild Mushrooming, really does demonstrate that because it is a book full of information and very much scientific information, um, but it's Put into words that are absolutely accessible and understandable and it's illustrated with the most phenomenal photography so i'm so excited now to welcome back onto the program Alison Pulio. hi Alison and thanks so much for joining us hi Amy it's lovely to be back on Uncommon Sense again well I've got to say I our last conversation was about your single authored book, The Allure of Fungi, and it is such a beautiful book. And I do hope that anyone who missed that chat could go back to it and to also look at that book. But this book in particular is a bit different. We didn't really talk too much about Foraging, We did a little bit, but Wild Mushrooming, A Guide for Foragers by yourself and Tom May is something quite different and it does seem to have a very particular purpose and also fill a very particular gap in our knowledge and also particularly in publishing. So I'd love to hear from you as to the purpose of this book and how you and Tom came together on it.
1: Absolutely, and you're right, it is a very different book to The Allure of Fungi, and basically it came about because over the last couple of decades, Tom and I very commonly get that question, where's the field guide that indicates edible and toxic fungi? And the reality is in Australia is that it doesn't exist. We see that in Europe and America and elsewhere where you will open up a field guide and there'll be a lovely little dinner plate and knife and fork symbol or a skull and crossbones to give you an idea of what's edible and what's toxic. But Tom and I did have concerns around producing this book. One, because the knowledge is different in Australia. We don't actually know a lot about our fungi relative to elsewhere. In particular, we don't know very many species that are we can definitively say are edible or toxic. And the second concern we had, was one that's a conservation concern. We didn't want to be seen as encouraging foraging. And of course, there's always this divide between what we call forayers and foragers, those who look for fungi of scientific or aesthetic interest, and those who are particularly after edible species. So we took a very precautionary approach, I guess, and we came up with this notion of slow mushrooming and ecological foraging. And by that, we say, if you're going to be a forager, we need to start from the premise first of understanding the ecology, and then the conservation. And over that, we overlay the idea of foraging. If you're going to take something from the environment, which is essentially an exploitation, to think about the potential consequences of actually removing that mushroom from the environment.
0: That's a really, uh, really excellent point, because that's something that uh, we certainly touched on last time very briefly was also conservation. And I'm particularly interested in that element as well, because on this show, I do have quite a lot of conversations about conservation of mammals and uh, invertebrates like insects and sea animals and plants, trees, all kinds of uh, living things, birds. But we don't tend to have discussions in those kind of broad, far-reaching ecological chats about ecosystem decline. We don't really talk about the fungal element of that so I would like to also touch on that if you don't mind in just a moment but because you did raise that ecological point which is that we need to understand what fungi is and how it works within the ecosystem and you do take us through that in those early chapters in the book is to really start to get people connected to the function of fungi and why it's there and what it's doing in the ecosystem to begin with. So I'm really keen to hear from you about our scientific understanding of fungi. And particularly, I was really amused, I guess, by one of the facts that you noted, which is that fungi was classified as plants by Swedish biologist Carl Linnaeus in the 18th century, and that it was not until the middle of the 20th century that they were assigned their own kingdom, the kingdom fungi. So we have the animal kingdom, we've got plants, and we've also got fungi. And I just was, I guess, taken aback by the fact that it was really only in the middle of our last century that we really discovered or figured out that it should have its own kingdom.
1: It's astonishing, isn't it? And you're right, it goes right back to Carl Linnaeus, who essentially had those two categories, as you mentioned. Animals were in one basket, plants were in another. And the fungi were lumped in with the plants, right down in the nether regions, the lower depths of the the plant kingdom probably largely because they were stationary. So animals were moving around, they were very different organisms to plants. Fungi weren't sort of you know moving or doing something, didn't have that animal behavior. And so they got thrown in with the plants. And it took, there were scientists before the middle of the 20th century who actually realized that they weren't plants, but it took a long time for their work to actually be recognized and published. But what's really interesting, although fungi do now have their own kingdom, Here in Australia, particularly in Victoria, we still often refer to nature or biodiversity as flora and fauna. We often still forget that third F. So there's still Mm. this lag time for them to actually be accepted as a really important fundamental part of biodiversity. But I think that's changing, Amy, and I think it's been changing gradually over the last couple of decades, but particularly in the last two or three years, I'm seeing in all sorts of fields, not just in conservation or ecology or natural history, but particularly in the arts and, and other areas as well, people actually are starting to want to bring in the concept of fungal mycelium, and the interconnectedness of fungi and forests into their work beyond the science of them. So I think that's a, we're at a really exciting turning point, a fungal awakening of sorts.
0: I'm glad to hear that. One of the things I guess that you could understand why perhaps a scientist in the 18th century might be confused or think that it was a plant and not its own separate kingdom was perhaps because of these mutually beneficial relationships that exist, which you also describe in the book. And you talk about mutualisms being symbioses that provide mutual benefits to both partners and um, you talk about some of these mutually beneficial relationships which have developed between organisms. So I wondered whether we could use that as a springboard into talking about the different parts of fungi, the different elements of it that will help us inform if we're out looking for mushrooms on a foray or if we're going foraging. What parts of a a mushroom and the sporophore, for example, um, the mycelium, what kind of things we're looking at when we're out into the field and what things we can't see too?
1: sure and coming back to your mention of symbiosis this is a really important thing you bring up because for a long time we thought about plants and animals but also fungi as individual entities we saw an orchid or we saw a butterfly a kangaroo or a mushroom and we didn't recognize those important connections those alliances or symbioses that they formed and why this is really important to the forager is that the great majority of plants actually form these connections with fungi. So if you're looking for particular fungi and you know they grow with a certain type of plant, you can get a lot of clues from the environment. For example, several of the mushroom species we mentioned in the book grow in association with the tree genus Pinus, or pine trees, popularly the the Pinus radiata, which we see in our plantations around the country. So if you can recognise the difference between, for example, a pine tree and a gum tree, then you're off to a flying start, because you're not mm-hmm. going to look for those, for example, the saffron milk caps, you're not going to look for those in the native bush, because you know they only grow in association with pine trees. So, and that's what I mean by starting with ecology. If you understand a little bit about how ecosystems, how symbiosis work, which tree species associate with which fungus species. If you start with this larger awareness of the actual environment you're in when you're out looking for mushrooms, then you're much more likely to be able to find the species you're after and identify them correctly. And also by understanding the ecology, you also develop an awareness that you're not the only one who's out there looking for those mushrooms, that there could be a potoroo or a wallaby or an antichinus or some other species. One of say the 14 species of native mammals that we know feed on fungi at this time of year that also might be looking for that mushroom that you're after. So I think it means that you see yourself not just as this person looking for something, exploiting, but you're working, I guess, in concert with or in sympathy with the environment the animals within that environment and also the plant species and the interconnection. So I I like that way of, again, that sort of separation of culture and nature. We're actually all part of that environment and therefore need to have that awareness, that respect, that consciousness about foraging. And that's, that's what we mean by ecological foraging. And I know that term might be troubling for some people and they might say, how can foraging ever be ecological, truly, but I guess what we're trying to say is at least if you're thinking about the ecology when you're doing it, not only are you going to increase the chances of getting a toxic species, but you're going to be foraging in a more sustainable, a more aware, a more conscious way.
0: Absolutely. And so when we're thinking about a mushroom, like I, I found your glossaries and those little blue breakout boxes really helpful because there were a lot of terms that I wasn't familiar with. And I liked the fact that you were saying we should be using terms where possible that are specific and that, that translate across texts so that we have, I guess, a general and shared understanding of, of what we're talking about when we're talking about certain things. So, for example, you say if the fungus is the entire entity of the mushroom, I guess you could say. That's the like colloquial way that we're talking about mushrooms. But there's a kind of whole entity which is the above ground and below ground entities. And obviously the spores and all kinds of other things going on with fungi. And then there are also mycota which is all the fungi of an area. So I'm gathering that if you're in a park or a a land specific area that you could say that that's the mycota of that area. I wonder whether you could share with us some of these specific terms that we might use in this conversation that you also use in the book that help us to be more specific about what we're talking about when we talk about looking at fungi and, and what exactly it is.
1: Absolutely, and I'm glad you brought this up, Amy, because Tom and I talked for a long time whether to talk about the mushroom cap and stem or to talk about the mushroom pileus and stipe, and we wondered whether to bring in these very scientific specific mycological terms or just to use the lay speak. But the problem with the lay speak is that it's wrong. So with fungi, we don't actually have an appropriate language to talk about. And, for example, if you think about fungi, we talk about the gills. But gills we've borrowed from animals. Mm -hmm. When we talk about the stem, we've borrowed that from plants. And and in my first book, The Allure of Fungi, I was trying to come up with a collective noun for different types of fungi, and I couldn't find one. I mean, we talk about murders of crows and parliaments of owls and caravans of camels and gaggles of geese. Try and think of them for fungi. And so I realised that the problem is by continuing with the language that we're borrowing from elsewhere, from animals and plants, is that we perpetuate the misunderstanding about what these organisms are. If you don't have a language to describe something, if you have to borrow that language from somewhere else, you keep on going with this you know, wrong classification and, and wrong meaning. You're, you're perpetuating misunderstanding. And that's why we thought... Let's actually give them a language. Let's give Mm. them their proper words and use them and try to introduce these to the reader. It also allows for cross-referencing because when we're talking about things like toxicity and edibility, often we need to refer to scientific texts, you know, to cross-reference, for example, and they're going to use that terminology. So I guess there's sort of two reasons. One is about precision so you can cross-reference. But two, part of giving something recognition is to use the language of that group and that's why we sort of words like I mean mushroom is a fantastic word we all know what it means but many fungi manifest or produce what used to be called their fruit bodies again we're using a word of plants there or their reproductive structures in forms beyond just the, the cap and you know the, I'm saying cap and stalk there I go again with the wrong terminology <laughs> or the umbrella the umbrella shaped mushroom they manifest as you know in other forms as well such as jellies or puffballs or phallic-shaped things or cage-shaped things. So there's all these different forms that aren't actually mushrooms. They're not umbrella-shaped. That's why we use this collective term sporo four or sporo-carp, which means spore-bearing body. And we were worried that we could lose some readers by making it too technical, but we do try and explain that early on. and and try to make these terms more familiar to try and bring that precision into the text. But I think by now, a lot of people have really embraced those new terms. I mean, I think it's always exciting when you move into any new field, whether you're learning to cook or whether you're learning carpentry or whether you're learning about orchids. It's always kind of quite an exciting thing to discover new words around those organisms or that interest.
0: Well, thankfully, there are diagrams as well. So if you're reading a word and you go, oh, I can't remember what that meant again, you can go back to the diagram and actually look at it and learn that way as well. So you can obviously learn visually just as much as you can through the text, which I found really helpful. And obviously, the photographs as well are very, very helpful. And interestingly, were those kind of words like pileus? Pileus, yes. So pileus. the pileus just refers to the cap. Yep, exactly. And it's that's the top part of the cap, and then there's exactly. the under, under part, which you were mentioning is incorrectly named gills, which is uh, lamellae.
1: Yes, that's right. Yep. And, and sometimes it's sort of, there's another word again, and I realise I really appreciate as I'm talking that, that this can be confusing when the reader starts out, but what we refer to this is as the fertile surface. And that means the surface where the spores are produced. The technical term is hymenium, but fertile surface is good. So sometimes it's lamellae, mm. or what we often refer to as the gills, or the, those radially arranged blades underneath the pileus or the cap. And then, but other times there's pores, tiny little holes underneath. Other times there's little projections like teeth. I think what matters most of all with language is that we can communicate and that we understand each other. And it doesn't matter whether people want to continue with gills rather than lamellae. What matters is that we know we're talking about the same thing. And oftentimes we put the term that we consider is the correct one, we'll put lamellae and in, then in brackets gills afterwards because it's a combination of wanting to have precision but also wanting people to understand what we're talking about.
0: Well, I think you strike a great balance there. So Thanks, Amy. it was really exciting in that way to talk about and learn about these areas. Every time I open up a new book, I learn new things. So I find that <laughs> there's just endless amounts of things to know about this kingdom. Do you find that yourself? I know you are yourself and Tom experts in this field, but do you also find yourself learning new things on a, a frequent basis?
1: Oh, Amy, every single time I go out in the bush, which is every single day, <laughs> I'll see something. It might be an unfamiliar species or it might be a familiar species doing something unfamiliar or being in an unfamiliar spot. So I learn an enormous amount every time I'm out in the forest or out in the bush about fungi, but also just through the interactions I have with people. So I'm so fortunate that I run workshops or I'm out foraging or forang with all kinds of people. For example, I learn so much from being out with traditional owners Or with rangers, but I'm also out there with artists and illustrators and photographers and philosophers farmers, regen farmers, permaculturalists, horticulturalists, and all of them have a different take, a different view, a different understanding on what fungi are, why they're significant. So for me, I feel very privileged to have that learning, both from the organisms themselves, but also from the the very many and varied perspectives from different people. And, of course, working with Tom, who his area is more so in, in the taxonomy or the naming and classifying of fungi, and also in the toxicology. So we share, we've both got a lot of common ground. We also both work in conservation. But we've got our special areas of expertise as well. So it's terrific to have almost daily conversations with Tom at the moment and discover new things working with him as well.
0: Yeah, must just be constantly stimulating in every oh, sense. Oh, it's wonderful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: I feel like a kid in a lolly shop almost every day. <laughs> oh, that sounds amazing. So let's also talk about Australia. We did mention Last time we had a chat, that Australia is mega diverse, and that wouldn't be new to people who appreciate Australia's very special position in the world and i know that we don't you know want to be too exceptionalist and say aren't we so great but we are pretty lucky in australia to have amazing songbirds fascinating and just beautiful forests that you can't see anywhere else in the world you know the bush in particular and the types of mammals that we have that no one else has there are a lot of species in australia that are absolutely endemic to australia that do not appear anywhere else and it seems like reading this book that also that is the situation with fungi and of course i'm sure other nations would have their own types of species that perhaps we don't have but it does seem that australia is in this lucky position to have so many different types of fungi You're
1: absolutely right and it does mirror what we see in the animal and plant kingdom as you suggested. And I think there's a number of drivers of that mega diversity and part of it is being an old isolated continent for a long time. But also we're a highly variable and changeable continent in terms of our our weather and climate regimes. And I think when you've got that variability, that unpredictability, then species have to respond. They have to adapt to cope with that constant change. And also, if you think about the size and the amount of latitude we have in this country, if you drew a line from far north Queensland all the way down to southern Tasmania and think about all the different types of ecosystem types we'd start off right up off Thursday Island in tropical warm seas we'd come out onto a sandy beach we'd come up through savanna grasslands then into tropical rainforests we'd come into temperate rainforests we then move into the Alps into those very specific alpine environments we might move through deserts if you keep going all the way through down to say South Bruny Island off southern Tasmania we You've got those wonderful huge stringy bark forests. All of those environments support different plant communities, they have different climates and microclimates, they have different kinds of organic matter and soil systems, and all of them incorporate different fungi and support different fungi. So if you think about Europe, there isn't tropical ecosystems, there isn't mangroves, there aren't deserts. You've got, you know, a much more, I guess, homogenised... Sure, you've got alpine areas and some level of diversity, but I think the diversity of environments and climates and and microclimates is so radical in Australia and they all support such different plant systems. So I think it's that, that variability, that unpredictability and the great diversity of different plant communities that support this amazing diversity of fungi and, and I think not only is the diversity of fungi incredible but also that we potentially have the oldest knowledge of our fungi of anywhere in the world and yet it's so rarely recognised. And all of the books I've got on fungi, they talk about various other countries as having knowledge that dates back to 10, 12, 14, 16,000 years. But potentially, our Australian Aboriginal knowledge of fungi could go back 60,000 years. So I think that's an amazing thing that we have this very old knowledge, even though much of it isn't accessible to many people. But we also have this mega diversity of fungi.
0: Well, yes, that's such a great point. And you do talk about that throughout the book is the indigenous knowledge that Australia has and we are very fortunate to have such historic knowledge and I think often when I've traveled over to Europe some Europeans have forgotten the fact that we you know <laughs> have amazing um, and very old knowledge from our First Nations peoples and will say, oh well you're a young country and I have to keep reminding them no we're not and that we are very fortunate to have such depth of knowledge. But one of the features of that knowledge is that it's often transferred orally And each Indigenous group may have different customs and different knowledge bases, depending on the land that they were living on. So I was also interested to learn that um, although we have this knowledge, perhaps we are missing out in some ways if we're not actively seeking it out from our Aboriginal elders and our First Nations people that we may not be tapping into the knowledge that we do actually have.
1: Look, you're absolutely right. And I'd be so thrilled to see some PhD projects that were funded for Aboriginal people to track back that ethno-mycological knowledge that is the human use of fungi historically, because I'm just deeply concerned that we're going to soon lose that. And I've been very privileged to work out on country some Wiradjuri elders and and learn some of their knowledge about how fungi was used. But you're right, most of the records of Aboriginal use of fungi aren't from Aboriginal voices. They're from the early diaries of settlers and pioneers in Australia who made observations of Aboriginal people using fungi. So they're very old records. They're possibly inaccurate and certainly names of fungi weren't used. But I just think, you know, it would be so wonderful if it was recognised how important this knowledge is. And it was actually funded for someone preferably some Aboriginal people to track their heritage of of how these fungi were and still are used because it's such old precious knowledge
0: And um, there were some really interesting anecdotes that you provided about how some groups of First Nations people were using fungi and that it did have some medicinal properties and also some practical properties like repelling flies. um, But also, you know, one of the ones I know um, had antibiotic properties as well and could heal sores. That's really fascinating to even think that these fungi actually have some really practical purposes that have been used for thousands and thousands of years.
1: Oh, absolutely. And as I mentioned, the work I did with the Wiradjuri, they showed me a species of fungi commonly known as the white punk, which is like a bracket, like an arc that grows on the side of a tree. And they told me how they would burn that. And it would burn very, very slowly and provide a source of light. And it was also used as kindling to start fires and also used to transport fire. So the uses were were many and varied. It's quite astonishing. And I think another thing, what you said before about your European friends who don't recognise Australia as, as being a fungal paradise, I think it's because there is this association that fungi grow in the depths of the deepest, darkest forests in the wet areas, down among the moss and ferns. And of course, that is where we find an enormous amount of fungi. But fungi grow in deserts too. They grow in very dry, sandy areas. And the people, again, who knew about them, were Australian Aboriginal people, desert people. And in fact, it was the women who used to go out and poke a stick into the sand to feel for the desert truffles. This is an underground fungus that doesn't produce its its sporophore, its reproductive structure above ground. They stay within the comfort of the soil. And they'd smell the end of the stick to see where those fungi were because they produce a particularly pungent smell. And that's how they located them, which is exactly the same way as native animals locate them. So I think there's this incredible knowledge here, not just of the fungi that grow in the the wetter forest areas, but also in the deserts as well. And as you mentioned, fungi being used medicinally, they've been used decoratively, they've been used as, as pharmaceuticals, they've been used in medicines sources of food and also other utilitarian uses as well. So, I mean, I, I just find it mind boggling to think how old this knowledge is and how varied it is. And and that's why I'd love to see, you know, some of it treasured and, and captured
0: yeah absolutely hopefully anyone listening who can potentially play a role in that um, may like to take up the opportunity and hopefully any institutions who have funding available can make that available because as you say these things need to actually have funding and money put into them and prioritized
1: indeed and i think oftentimes we we, we notice charismatic things. We notice the charismatic mammal or bird or orchid because of its beauty, and, and that's a wonderful thing. And I think gradually... Fungi are being recognised as charismatic or as beautiful, but I think for a long time we mentioned language before and why we chose the the technical language for the book. But if you also look back historically at the way fungi have been talked about, they've often had very negative associations. They were associated with witchcraft, with the supernatural, with things that were unpredictable, with rotting, with drug use. And, and for example, the use of the word mushrooming itself used as a verb refers to to collecting mushrooms, of course, but it's also used to talk of something that has sudden growth, sudden explosive growth. But usually it's negative things. Like if we mm. talk about something like the economy or a love relationship, we talk about it with these botanical terms like blossoming and budding and blooming. But if crime's increasing, we talk about it mushrooming yeah. <laughs> or if the mafia or, if you know, prostitution or brothels or something we regard negatively. It's often used with the word mushrooming. And I've studied very closely some of the origins of these words and, and how we've used them. And if you even look up, for example, in a thesaurus, the word fungus, the synonyms are word like words like disease and blight and blast and rot and decay. <laughs> it never says vitally important organism or, or symbiosis. It's always with this negative history. So I think language really has a huge part in shaping how we how we regard and think about and understand different groups of
0: organisms. That's absolutely true. It does remind me of mushroom cloud. So those atomic bomb clouds. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Yeah. Associated with, you know, nuclear warheads and uh, contamination um, and obviously death and disease. So yeah, it is pretty shocking to think that this is a legacy that we kind of don't really think about. and we use these words very unknowingly or unthinkingly and you know we're not really realizing that we're contributing to these negative stigmas or oh, stereotypes.
1: Yeah. And the latest one, I was quite surprised, I received an email this morning about someone concerned about a, a ring of mushrooms in their garden. And what I suddenly realized to my shock horror, is that the word of a particular virus, <laughs> the words the language you used to describe has suddenly been transferred to fungi and they were talking about outbreaks of fungi in their backyard and the need to sanitize after she'd been out there i thought oh no like this is again this negative language that fungi are being lumped in with anything that's potentially problematic so yeah it's very interesting and i think it does we know how how governments and politics use language to their advantage to to shape thinking. And I think, you know, different groups over history have used fungi with particular language, also because historically they were often associated with women. And the knowledge of fungi gave women historically a certain power because particular fungi can do things like kill people. And so Mm -hmm. I think, you know, some fungi were used to, to advantages or disadvantages and, again, these negative associations with different groups of people has carried over and so that's why it matters to me a lot to to give fungi their own language and also a positive language and to start to get yeah for people to recognize them as charismatic but I get so inspired Amy by the people who do come along to workshops with their paintbrushes or their cameras or their their notebook to to write stories and and they see this wonderful new kingdom that that stimulates their imaginations gives them new ideas they appreciate the, the you know wonderful manifestations and curious forms that fungi appear in so I really think where things are changing, thinking is changing around them and and the more writers and playwrights and sculptors and whomever that write or create stories around fungi, I think the more positive they'll become in people's imaginations and, and knowledge and understanding.
0: Absolutely. Before we jump into some of the foraging tips and, and those really practical things, I did want to touch on a couple of other things that are relevant for our discussion on that and I wanted to revisit something which is very basic for anyone who may be very familiar with fungi, but it is kind of pretty seminally important. And that is basically what fungi is doing when it's connected to a tree root or and that may be in in soil, but also it may be on a piece of wood, for example, or an old tree. And um, I'm thinking of like lichen, for example. There are these types of fungi like mycelial networks under the ground in the soil doing very critical things for our ecosystems, and there's also... Things that fungi are feeding off and utilizing around them, like uh, tree leaves and and obviously old rotting wood or other types of uh, materials. So I just wondered whether you could share with us those connections with other living organisms and what these elements are doing and why they're so valuable or critical to the ecosystems.
1: I think it's great that you pull out this part because I think the ecological significance of fungi is, as I mentioned earlier, is the first premise you need to understand if you're going to be a forager. And basically, you might have heard plants spoken of as being the producers, animals are consumers, but again, we forget the third F as the primary recyclers. So fungi are the great recyclers of organic matter. They have a great range of different chemical enzymes that they secrete directly into the soil that can break down those recalcitrant compounds like lignin and cellulose that make up sticks and leaves and all that organic matter. They dissolve those, break them down and return those nutrients to the soil again, making them biologically available to all all the other plants and organisms in the ecosystem. But they not only recycle, they also connect up the different plants within an ecosystem. So we know we've often spoken of the wood wide web or this underground internet of connectivity and most of our Australian trees, for example, or European trees as well, certainly every orchid, most shrubs and grasses, they actually, their roots are actually entangled within this expansive network of fungal mycelium. That's the growing feeding part of the fungus. I'm sure everyone's seen that when they've scratched around in the compost or the leaf litter, and you see this cobwebby network of these long white fibres. That's the growing, living, feeding part of the fungus that connects up the tree roots in what's known as a mycorrhizal relationship. Chip, myco meaning fungus, rhizal meaning root, and they actually expand out the root system of the tree. And the mycelium is much, much finer than any tree's root. So what that means is that they can find their way in between all those tiny interstitial spaces in between the grains of soil and sand and access more nutrients and more water and transport those back to the tree. And this is a mutually beneficial relationship whereby the tree in return gives the fungus a lovely feed of sugars. So there's different types of fungi you mentioned. Some of them aren't forming this connective relationship. They're just living directly within the log or the pine cone or the leaf and actually just breaking those down through the secretion of those enzymes. So they do play an incredibly important ecological role, connecting up ecosystems, putting architecture in soil, aerating soil, making little spaces so that other invertebrates, little worms and beetles and bugs and other creatures can actually inhabit that soil so that it's not just dirt, but actually it's soil. It's biologically active. They also allow water to filtrate very gently down through the soil to those deeper horizons. So fungi play this amazing ecological role. But as you mentioned earlier in the program, Because they're sort of under the ground, they're out of sight, they're out of mind. It's microscopic. We're not usually aware of what they're doing. But I think now, with all of these amazing ways we have to see things, you know, with special cameras and, you know, DNA sequencing and microscopes, we're now really only starting to recognise not just how important they are, but how vast, how expansive fungi are. And I often get asked the question, "Oh, where do I find fungi?" And I think often the question should be, where don't you find these fungi? Yeah. <laughs> There's pretty much every habitat we have, fungi have worked out how to colonize them, including the human habitats of armpits and toenails and, and other spots. But you know, you you mentioned the lichens before and I've been out in the forest and I've seen them not just on wood and rock, but also you know you see old cars and they've colonised the, the paint and the metal and the, and the glass and the rubber. I think fungi are the ultimate opportunists and they've worked out how to pretty much colonise every environment that's out there.
0: Yeah, well, that is true. I have seen a few cars with some lichen on their roofs. Yeah and also little bits of lichen on your corrugated iron and on branches of trees. You can kind of suddenly see some or on painted fences. The the places you probably wouldn't really look for fungi are some of those Mm. places that you find it. And one other part of this is also spores and the role that they're playing in the air and also even in weather.
1: Absolutely. And so the spore is the basic reproductive unit for the listeners who aren't familiar with spores or of a fungus. And it's a little different to, say, a seed in plants in that they don't tend to have their own food supply. They're microscopic, but they're quite ubiquitous. So the fungi produce millions of spores. And the fact that we're not completely overrun with fungi suggests that most of them are either fairly short-lived or they don't find the exact right conditions they need. They need to have the right combination of moisture and temperature and pH and all those things for them to be able to actually germinate. So we, we have spores everywhere, but they're probably relatively short lived and most of them don't find those conditions. But that, as you mentioned, that's, that's the basic reproductive unit of a fungus.
0: Well, they're very beautiful when they're released from, I think I saw a video of them released from a puff ball. It might've been, and they just kind of had this beautiful little cloud of mist that seemed to come out of it. Yeah,
1: just astonishing. And some of the the slow motion capacity we have now with photography just really captures the absolute beauty of spore release. It's just stunning. And also another wonderful project in terms of the aesthetics of fungi and a great one for kids or adults as well is producing spore prints. So when we actually remove the, the pileus or the cap from the fungus and place it down on a piece of paper or another surface and after a while we see those spores drop out and leave this lovely formation on the page which represent the the lamellae or the gills of the fungus so yeah that's just stunning and the color range of different spores as well there's a whole spectrum of different colors they can appear in which is another good feature to learn when you're learning how to identify fungi
0: well let's move into that section of the book and it is a very large section of the book so we won't get to every part of it but one of the great things that i learned from this book among many things was the fact that There are basic things you should always consider. So I I read that we should always consider colour of these uh, sporophores, but we should also, in tandem, consider morphology or form of the fungi. But they're two kind of key and obvious things. Then you go through and talk about a whole range of other elements that one should identify, observe, carefully consider, look at before one even touches anything. And that's things like texture, you say spore prints, and also things like smell as well. So I wonder if you could take us through, if we were going out with you, Alison, and we were walking through a beautiful forest, what would we be thinking about and looking at when we were trying to identify certain types or species of fungi?
1: okay, so we we suggest starting with the whole notion of what we call slow mushrooming, and I'm sure you've heard this term before with associated with the slow food movement that started in Italy, but also now we have slow film and slow music and slow arts. And the whole the thing that they all share in common, is the idea that we slow down and do something thoroughly and conscientiously and consciously. So rather than go out and just look at every single fungus in the habitat, particularly I'm talking about if you're a forager and you want to find edible fungi, rather than looking at everything, we say go out and just learn a few species thoroughly rather than many superficially. So I suggest by beginning with adopting this approach of slow mushrooming, where we get to learn just one species to start with. And we learn that species in all its different developmental stages and all of the variation that can occur in color and form, as you suggested, at different developmental stages and with exposure to differing weather. So my approach when we go out is, unless you're doing a survey or something where you're trying to actually work out, you know, how many species are in a given area, but if we're going out to learn about edible species, my approach is to say, right, okay, we've found saffron milk cap, let's just look at the species for the next hour and we'll find the same species in all different forms, different shapes, uh, influenced by different environmental conditions at different environmental stages. And we learn, it firstly to do with the habitat it's in, the substrate, what it's growing in, and then we look at the particular diagnostic features, the recognisable features of the different parts of the fungus. So I guess it's a really it's a really thorough approach. We have a checklist where you go through, you don't just get two or three things, like sometimes I hear people say, oh yeah, there's an orange mushroom growing in the forest and you can eat them. Well, there's actually lots of different orange mushrooms that grow in the forest, and the ones that you can eat, you need to be absolutely sure that you work through everything, how it looks, how it smells, the different features, what it's growing in association with, what substrate it's growing in. So we take this very sort of slow, considered approach because we always say you're better to leave an edible fungus Uneaten than to eat a toxic one. And that's why we say just go really slowly, really carefully, and very thoroughly. And so once we've actually worked out what kind of habitat we're in, we've identified we're in a pine forest or we're in the eucalyptus bush. We then look at what the mushroom's growing in. Is it actually growing in wood? And if it's wood, is it on a living tree or is it on a fallen log? Or is it growing in soil? And is that soil sandy? Or has it got a lot of organic matter in, within it? And then once we've worked out those two things, we very systematically work through the various diagnostic features. And it's not just about looking at them, it's about using other senses as well. So as you mentioned, fungi have this most amazing array of different scents and odors. There's some fungi that smell distinctively like curry powder, there's others that smell like rotting fish, there's some that smell like chlorine, there's some that smelled like soap, others smell almost floral. And so developing your nose to recognize these different scents is another way of being able to eliminate particular fungi in the past to working out what we've found. And then of course is touch. And there's a big difference when you touch a fungus. It might just feel wet, but then you might notice, oh, actually, it's not wet. It's slightly more, hmm, is that waxy or is it buttery or is it greasy or is it mucousy? There's all these different, slightly different textures to fungi. So I think as with anything, if you become a, a wine connoisseur or a wonderful chef or whatever, you fine tune your skills. You become a better, better at smelling fungi, at recognising their textures, at seeing their features And that collectively is really just about familiarity that comes from experience. So I always say to people, sure, you can learn a lot on the internet, you can learn a lot from field guides and and other great resources that we have, but actually getting out and observing them in situ in the forest or the garden or whichever ecosystem you're walking in, that's the best way to learn.
0: Absolutely. One consideration that you might take, and obviously, Alison, You're very across where you can forage and where you're allowed and where you should forage. Um, But some people may not be aware that there are rules about where you can forage and I wondered whether you could take us through what rules exist and I know that it is a little bit murky in some situations so to also you know take us through if there are areas of grey what what's the current regulatory environment that Australians live in because I'm gathering it's a bit different from those who for, for example live in Europe.
1: That is, and it's a good thing you brought up because the rules are very different in a lot of parts of Europe. They have something called the Allemandsrat, which means that you are free to collect fungi or berries or whatever on both public and private land, so long as you do it only for your consumption and in a non-exploitative way, so you're not collecting hordes of them to sell or whatever. However, that's not the situation in Australia. All of Australia's biodiversity, so your fungi, your animals and plants in Australia are protected on public land. So it's quite complicated and it's murky, as you say, because this happens at federal state and local government levels. There's different laws and bylaws and and different regulations, but the overarching rule is that fungi along with other biodiversity are protected on public land. So if you're a forayer, and by a forayer I mean someone who just looks at and observes and records fungi but doesn't remove them, of course you can do that anywhere in a national park on public private land, but if you're a forager, if you're someone who collects fungi, it must be on private land. And so it needs to either be on your property or the property of someone you know, or or somewhere, if you're on on someone else's private property, again, you still need to have the permission of that landholder to be on that land because you could be done for trespass if you haven't got their permission. So that, I recognise that is a limitation that's very different to Europe. And sometimes Europeans are disappointed because they're used to having that freedom just to collect. But keep in mind, This is why Australia is mega diverse. We don't have those population pressures and we haven't taken everything freely from the landscape. And so I think... I think it's actually a wonderful thing that we do have protections. And until we really fully understand the life histories of our fungi, we still don't really know, do we have rare species? And if so, where are they and what are the threats to those species? And so I guess until you fully understand something, you really have to take that precautionary approach. However, many of the fungi that we suggest are good edible species in the book actually do grow in things like pine forests. And many people often have pine trees on their property and some pine forests are actually on private land. So we're saying just be aware of the regulations when you go out somewhere into a forest, of course you can't forage in national parks. I know that some states do have state level regulation that does allow foraging, but it's up to the responsibility of the forager to know the regulations of where they are and whether they're on private or public land.
0: Yeah, and it does also remind me of another consideration which you've really referenced earlier on which is about conservation and then that brings in things like ethics and you do have a code of practice for foragers in this book. And it does have some really helpful things to think about when you're going out because maybe not everyone has a similar type of ethics or code of practice that they might approach nature with. So it does seem helpful to have an idea of how we can forage in these areas that we're allowed to in a respectful and mindful way that does the least amount of disturbance to the ecosystem. So I wonder if you could share with us maybe a couple of the things that you think are most pertinent for us to keep in mind.
1: Sure, and I think this relates not just to fungi, but to any biodiversity, as they say, all the biodiversity is protected. And I guess from my experience of living half of every year in Europe over the last 20 years, i reminded every time just how precious and how much more intact our ecosystems are in Australia. And I think, you know, I don't want to see Australia ending up being highly regulated like it is in Europe because those regulations could never be effectively enforced. So the responsibility has to come back to the individual. And I think most of this just comes back to really back to common sense and regard for nature, I don't think there's anything that's you know particularly unusual. But I think you know as I mentioned before, if you're on private land, you should have the permission. But I think most of it is about minimalising disturbance. So if you are foraging somewhere, being really aware that. Any impacts from foraging usually come from the process itself. So it's the trampling of ecosystems, of soils. It's the compression of those soils. So it's trying. It's the digging up of the of the mushrooms. So, being aware to try, absolutely try and minimalise any level of disturbance that you cause in the environment. You know, of course, the obvious thing is not leaving litter all around. And if you actually are foraging, to not leave your offcuts everywhere. I think. It's both an ethics thing here about looking after the environment for other species, but also I think there's an aesthetic thing. It's always disappointing when you turn up to a park or a garden or somewhere and you see litter or you see the evidence of someone else's disregard. But I think that stuff really is about yeah, common sense and and respect for nature and the environment and, and other people's experience. And I guess that's the bottom line of what we're trying to do in the book is to try and suggest or impart a philosophy or a protocol or one way around foraging that is, as I mentioned earlier, it starts with ecology, it overlays conservation, and then foraging comes last on top of that. It has to begin, you know, every forager has to essentially be a conservationist because Mm. you want to protect the place and the environments from which you're taking something from. So I think we say that that really has to be the starting point. You know, if you come in and 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 rape and pillage, then we're not going to have fungi around or the environments to forage from, and everything will become highly regulated to the point that we can't. So I think it it really has to begin from that place.
0: It certainly does. And I know that all the people listening here will have our kind of approach to nature because I get so much feedback from people writing messages to me saying how much they absolutely adore fungi. So I know they'll be hopefully enjoying this chat um, because it's Uh, uh, definitely know that this is probably one of the top three topics that people love talking about. Amy, I think you've been an amazing advocate for (laughs) for fungally infecting everybody
1: out there. You've (laughs) certainly got a, a lot of people on board.
0: I'm just happy to provide a platform to the people who communicate it so well. So it's my pleasure. Let's talk about those areas of fungi that can make a few people nervous. And um, I know that that's because in the news we do here every autumn and then some parts of spring that there are the odd person who will pick up a mushroom, touch it, maybe consume it, and they'll either have a kind of allergic reaction or gastrointestinal symptoms because they've eaten it and it was toxic but not deadly. But there are also some mushrooms that are deadly. And there is obviously a very helpful chapter in this book about poisonous fungi, which is chapter eight. And it takes us through some of the more common poisonous fungi and also their lookalikes and how we actually identify poisonous fungi and make sure that we're not touching, consuming these fungi that do have lookalikes and are also in some cases like the death cap mushroom, not that uncommon. So I wondered whether you could talk with us a little bit about poisonous mushrooms and give us a sense of what level of risk is there and how do we make sure that we are taking appropriate precautions and maybe using the death cap mushroom as one example.
1: Absolutely, and I think the death cap mushroom, this is an exotic fungus from elsewhere that was first seen in Australia in about the 1960s and it grows in association with oak trees, the genus Quercus, in particular Quercus roba, but also with another probably dozen species of North American, European and Asian Quercus species. And unfortunately, this fungus, because it is deadly, as its name suggests, the death cap being a common name, Amanita phalloides being the scientific name, Unfortunately, as you say, it's relatively common. So if you think about all those oak trees around Melbourne, particularly around the CBD and the shrine, the botanic gardens, but also out into the Eastern suburbs, such as Turek and Baldwin, and all those lovely oak lined streets out there, it's relatively common in areas where there's high population. And unfortunately, it has been mistaken for fill mushrooms or for other fungi with tragic and fatal consequences at times. So it is really important that people know about this fungus. And I often say to foragers, this is the first fungus you should learn because it's the one that you never, ever want to eat. However, in reality, there's probably very, very few toxic fungi. We don't know for sure, but worldwide it's suggested that it's probably less than 1%. So the great majority of fungi aren't, deadly or even probably toxic in the same way the great majority of fungi aren't edible and palatable there's a lot of things that you can eat that aren't necessarily palatable you don't necessarily <laughs> want to eat them they're not delicious and most fungi are probably neither here nor there not not palatable and not not toxic however talking about risk even though there's very very few deadly fungi and few highly toxic fungi the risk is relatively low, but the outcome can be catastrophic. And because they do grow in relatively, you know, usually in urban areas, because most of our oak trees are planted in parks and gardens and cities and urban areas, they're not out in the bush growing wild there. They're exotic, they're introduced trees. They're in places where there's lots of people. They tend to grow in abundance. They're in areas that are commonly watered or irrigated. So they pop up quite frequently. So we say, this is the first mushroom you should learn because it's the one you never, ever want to confuse. And if you do take that systematic approach that I mentioned earlier about recognising the the tree species they grow with, the kinds of habitats they grow in, and then systematically work through all the features, the colour, the shape, the smell, the texture, the nature of the different parts, You'll never mess it up, but it's got to be that systematic slow mushrooming approach. So you really do cover all those features. And in the book, the section on toxic fungi is actually one of the largest sections. We do cover some very important, about eight or 10 species that you should always learn. And we always encourage people when they learn an edible species to learn alongside that edible species, those toxic doppelganger or look-alike species as well. So it's not about just learning the features, but those often subtle nuanced differences with the toxic lookalike species. But the death cap, and sometimes I feel like it's given the whole kingdom of fungi a bad reputation. (laughs) And so, and when you ask, you know, what is the risk? That's a really hard question to answer because it depends on people's level of knowledge, their level of skill, their ability to smell something do you know what i mean there's no yeah. sort of definitive answer there that it's a high risk activity or a low risk activity if you're someone who's conscientious who, who does take that systematic approach who doesn't you know rush home with the basket full and throw them in the pan then the risk is relatively low. But it depends on the individual's willingness to actually learn something thoroughly through that slow mushrooming approach. And also they do need to have a sense of smell and be able to feel those different textures and and take a, a very considered approach to it.
0: Well, I'm so glad we are talking about this now, given that uh, we are heading into mushrooming season and foraying and foraging season, because we do see mushrooms even pop up in our gardens, around our trees and in the grass and around all of the, the leaves that have kind of fallen from the trees. And when I was looking in the poisonous fungi section to actually see if I could see any that I've seen in my garden, and I wondered whether it was the shaggy parasol I'm not really sure there's that breaking up of the head of the mushroom like the top of it but I wondered about some of these ones that might appear in your garden more often than perhaps out into a I don't know a forest or somewhere that's a kind of nature reserve are there ones that we might see domestically more than others.
1: There are, you're absolutely right. So, like plants and animals, there are some fungi that are particularly ruderal. And what I mean by ruderal are those that lived in disturbed environments. So, for example, we see plants like that too, blackberry, and what we often refer to as weedy species. And there's particular animals too that we see around urban environments. Maybe they're rats or maybe they're, they're particular birds, some of the introduced birds. And fungi are the same. So, For example, the one you're mentioning might be something like a shaggy ink cap or a lawyer's wig. And this is an early colonising species. So whenever there's any disturbance, say someone's been digging in the garden or putting down their wood chips or digging in the compost or perhaps doing the usual garden manicuring or whatever, these fungi are quite tolerant to those levels of disturbances. And they're some of the first fungi to come back when an area has been disturbed. They're like the early pioneering plants. These are the first fungi to appear when there has been that disturbance. some of these are edible and some of them are toxic. And the one you mentioned, if it is the what's commonly called the ink cap or shaggy ink cap or sometimes it's called the lawyer's wig, it's quite a particular one because it's got a very cylindrical, Cap or pileus. It's not the usual kind of broadly umbrella shaped one. It has this almost tube like cylindrical pileus and has these odd little tufts. If you think about what a lawyer's wig looks like, it's got these kind of woolen fluffy bits on it. And that's quite unusual in a fungus to look like that. And it's called the inky cap because as it starts to age and decompose, it produces this black inky substance this liquid which is actually the spore mass when in fact it was once used as ink but it's a very particular looking fungus and it's a fantastic edible species but of course it's got a look alike species within the same <laughs> genus that isn't technically toxic but if you consume it with alcohol this fungus has a particular chemical that deactivates your ability to process that alcohol and you end up getting poisoned not by the fungus by the alcohol so fungi often have caveats special caveats around them and they both commonly grow in those kinds of urban or rural environments that you mentioned so again you need to learn the two alongside each other or you need to be a teetotaler So, so the other one doesn't actually poison you so again it's about systematically going through those fungi but something I should mention to keep in mind that if you are foraging in an urban environment that fungi are not only the great recyclers, they're also the great vacuumers of the world. They slurp up everything that's in that environment. So if someone has been using a bit of glyphosate or some kind of chemicals or pesticides or insecticides or weedicides, or if someone's walked their dog right where you're collecting that mushroom, the fungi are going to absorb whatever's in that environment. And sometimes what are thought to be fungal poisonings from an inherent toxin in the fungus are in fact due to contamination of the fungus. Always make sure you're collecting from a clean environment. Don't collect from a road verge, from a busy road where you've got all those petrochemicals and rubbers and things in the runoff into the road verge. You always need to be aware of something of the history of that environment and any potential contamination that could be there.
0: What a great point. One thing that you reminded me of from this book, there's also the fact that you could have an edible species and the sporophore sitting right next to or near a toxic species with its sporophore. And so you need to be mindful of where it is that you're collecting these fungi and where they are in relation to others and what surrounds them
1: absolutely and if you think of the classic example the situation in the pine forest where many people are familiar with the red one with the has the the fairies underneath it in children's book illustrations that one's known as the fly agaric or amanita muscaria and it can actually often be touching the saffron milk cap lactarius deliciosus lactarius deliciosus is edible and the fly garrick is toxic. So and they can yeah. I've seen them with their, you know, the pileus or the caps actually overlapping and touching. And that's why it's so important to to very carefully examine every mushroom and not assume that two mushrooms growing side by side are actually both edible.
0: Yeah. I love those um the red ones, which are like in the Enid Blyton books that you yeah. see. It was really sweet. They're but obviously, stunning, eh? aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. To look at. Well, another one that is stunning to look at, we did mention last time was is it the ghost fungus oh yes yes yeah. yeah indeed i mean that's one of the most
1: enchanting fungi i've ever encountered and they're out at the moment i saw them just a few oh. days ago but this one is a stunning fungus the ghost fungus or umphalotus nidiformis and it has this compound called illudin that causes it to just have this very soft kryptonite green glow <laughs> so it's a stunning thing but would you believe that yesterday Somebody confused this with the common oyster mushroom that we're now seeing mm. in supermarkets and at markets. You know this lovely fungus with the long white gills that are often sold in in farmers' markets and even in supermarkets as a cultivated species. But sometimes, particularly Europeans, because they're used to growing it on growing in their European forests at home, they see it growing here, but it's not the oyster mushroom. It's the ghost mushroom, and the ghost mushroom has a very powerful emetic, which means it will cause you to throw up, to vomit, and uh, and, and apparently it's very violent. So mm. this is one not to confuse, and they can look superficially similar. And we cover both these species side by side in the book, but it's a really it causes poisons every year because they grow in these lovely big nests of these beautiful, lovely greyish white arc shaped fungi on the side of trees and you can see why people mix the two up but again if you sort of know those subtle differentiating features you'll never confuse the two
0: yes and not everyone's going to be walking along at nighttime, for example <laughs> that's where, right. where you're probably not foraging because you can't see things very well apart from a ghost mushroom that's right exactly And there are some other really interesting edible fungi, and you did mention earlier the saffron milk cap, which is a very beautiful one. And so I just wanted to ask about some of these ones that you said we should identify, like starting with a saffron milk cap, and what we should be thinking about, what we can um, look out for, what are maybe a couple of ones that might be the safest place to start for anyone who was trying to take the cautious approach that you're recommending?
1: Look, you've hit the mushroom on the head exactly. This is the one to begin with. And in the book, we we focus, we profile 10 edible species that we think are relatively abundant. They're relatively common. They're fairly easy to identify and they don't have a lot of toxic lookalike species. And this one in particular, what's great about the saffron milk cap, it has lots of easily recognisable diagnostic features. And we order these 10 species based on what we think is the easiest through the slightly more difficult one to identify. And what I have noticed, Amy, over years and years and years and years of sitting alongside the mushroom inspectors in Europe, they're known as the Controller in Switzerland, I just sat beside them for years and I watched what people brought in in their baskets. And I noticed that foragers typically don't bring in 20 or 30 or 40 species they don't even bring in eight or nine or ten species they mostly target two or three or maybe four of their favorite species you could always pick the amateur forager who came in with 50 species in their basket because they just <laughs> grabbed everything they could see they come in and they shift that responsibility over to the mushroom inspector but the real foragers is only usually targeted two or three or four species and that's why we thought in this book don't try and profile everything and just have a couple of words about a species in one picture we thought that Learn 10 species thoroughly. Few foragers ever pick more than 10 species, from my observation, usually far fewer. So mm. we start with this one you mentioned, the saffron milk, cat, because it's common, it's abundant, it grows in association with the pine forests, and there's so many pine forests around, and it has lots and lots of conspicuous features. And people seem to say it's it's got good flavour, it's robust, it's a popular edible species. So we thought that was a great one to start with, and it doesn't have many lookalike species it has a few but it still has many more distinguishing features so you can easily separate it for example the, the name lactarius lact means milk it produces this milky substance that we call latex and it's saffron orange it's such an obvious feature and then after a while where you've actually bruised it to get that that milk to come out you'll see that that bruised area starts to oxidize and turn green so these are very conspicuous, easily recognisable features. And the one you mentioned before too, the Shaggy Ink Cap, that's another one again, that's quite easily recognisable because it has these very obvious distinguishing features and not many look-alike species. And then we move through several others such as the bluet, Lapista Nuda. That's also a fairly easy one to recognise. It does have one look-alike species called the Emperor Courtenay. It can look quite similar in fact, but one very obvious difference is that all of the cortinarius produce these rusty, tan-coloured spores, unlike the pale, pinkish, purplish spore colour of the, of the Lapista Nuda. Often it's pinkish-brown would be the colour, but it's never rusty-brown tan colour, the spore print, it's like with the, the cortinarius. So that's why it's important, again, the notion of slow mushrooming. If you're not sure, don't just come home and throw them in the pan. Take that spore print. Make the spore print, and that's a really important thing to do. And that's again part of that slow and philosophy. So we try to order these, and we sort of say, if you're new to foraging, go through in the order we suggest because they're the easiest ones. You're less likely to get them mixed up with the lookalike species at the beginning. But I think that notion of of just you know having fewer species. There's field guides that have hundreds and hundreds of species, not in Australia but in Europe, where every species they've identified as edible or toxic. But we think that one photograph at one particular life stage isn't enough to make a reliable identification. And that's why we just have fewer species, but lots and lots of information alongside the toxic doppelganger, lots of checklists with illustrations. You know, so we've got the, the written description and then the photographic description to describe those features. And our hope is that by taking that slow mushrooming approach and having a lot of those details that will radically reduce the risk of people getting poisoned or harming the environment
0: we're coming to the end of the discussion but i did want to ask about one of these edible fungi because i myself have been fortunate enough to you know sample a whole range of fungi that are used in for example chinese cooking and there's obviously the common ones like ear, which is that black slightly rubbery mushroom and it can be dried and then wet again and then put into different dishes and there's one that's also quite similar in this guide which is colloquially called the white brain and it says that in its habit section of how it grows that it's both solitary or gregarious which I just love the idea that a a Mushroom could be gregarious in the fact that it, yeah, they like having friends, too. yeah,
1: yeah, indeed, and that's something we haven't talked about. So, habit exactly as you say, some fungi just do to see one. Mushroom up there on its own. Other times you'll see them in a group or gregarious, as you say. And sometimes they're even cespitose. And what that means is they form a common base. So you'll see many mushrooms come up, but they all join at the base. So, this again, another really important feature. But you're right, I love this idea of the gregarious jellies or hanging out on a log. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's so great. It kind of does make you feel like they're having fun or there's a lot of activity oh, going are, sure. on. Yeah. <laughs>
1: There's a whole lot more activity than we realise because oftentimes when we see a mushroom on a log, and you'll commonly see in in field guides that, you know, this species grows on a log, we've got to remember that the mushroom actually is appearing on the log but the fungus itself lives in the log, not on it but within it. It's actually there, the Mm. mycelium, is living within the the wood of the log and slowly breaking that down, feeding on it, and they just produce their sporophores or their mushrooms on the outside of the log. So, again, the way we think about fungi... We don't always sort of quite recognize the extent, the vastness of them. It's just not that, it's not just that mushroom on the log, but the fungus itself is inhabiting perhaps the entirety of the inside of that log.
0: Yeah, I loved that. And you do have some photographs in the book which have the inner parts of bits of wood, and you can see the myceliums kind of threaded all the way through the bits of the wood and the fact that you do also say in the book that even in our backyards we should keep trees that are no longer photosynthesizing that are decaying or dead so to speak because they're actually technically living there are so many other organisms that are part of this log that rely on it like even beetles for example it just was a great reminder to me and hopefully to others that we don't need to constantly clean up our gardens and get rid of things that we think are debris or no longer needed. Sometimes it actually provides such a critical function.
1: Absolutely. And sometimes I get really saddened when I hear that idiom, you know, someone's referred to as being dead wood, you know, meaning Mm -hmm. that they're redundant in the workplace because, I mean, wood is technically dead anyway, but I think it's it's a great shame because the habitat that whether it's a standing stag or a fallen log, it's just phenomenal how many different invertebrates, how many different fungi all inhabit that environment. And I think we've got this such a a huge fear of fire now and the cleaning up and, you know, we're seen as good citizens if we clean everything up and we refer to it as litter, you know, something you throw away or fuel, something you burn. But if we refer to it as incredibly important biodiverse habitat among one of the most biodiverse habitats in the world, that is leaf litter, I think we'd have a lot more trouble, you know, to we worry a lot more about cleaning it up or burning it because we'd recognise all those lives that we're destroying. And also the fact that that leaf litter layer often actually retains moisture in the soil and keeps that that soil inhabitable and in the garden you know more moist so I think it's a good time to rethink organic matter and just how important it is.
0: Yes yeah, so stop raking the leaves or do it <laughs> less often.
1: Yeah I think so too and, and enjoy the amazing myriad fungi that might appear if you retain
0: that. Alison, just one last question, because I did want to reflect on Victoria here and our situation in particular. In this book, you say that there are very few fungi that are actually listed to be threatened and that we should be actively conserving and looking after at the state level and that there are actually none listed nationally at that federal level through the legislation. And I know that our knowledge of the very, very many thousands of fungi is limited and that many species aren't even named yet. But are there species here that we need to be mindful about, that we need to take care of and that potentially deserve conservation status? Lucas, it's a
1: fantastic question again. And look, fungal conservation is a long way behind plant and animal conservation because to start talking about rarity, you have to know about distribution. So you can't say something's rare until you've surveyed somewhere and you actually know where it occurs and where it doesn't occur and that you know something about its life history. I mean, perhaps some fungi only appear every few years or only under certain conditions. So at this stage, we're still trying to just determine the distribution of our fungi, understand their life histories, and then any suspect could be at risk. And that's usually because we see some kind of environment disappearing. For example, there's one species that grows on old unburnt tea tree. And we don't have much of that anymore because they typically grow in coastal areas. And so much of our coastline has been developed in Victoria. So it's often to do with habitat loss that we're losing fungi. But the great thing is we've got all these platforms now, like iNaturalist I and the Atlas of Living Australia, and people are sending in their observations of where particular fungi are. And you might have heard of FungiMap, which was initiated by my co-author, Tom May. And that was one of the precursors to things like Iron Atlas and the the ALA, the Atlas of Living Australia. So because of community contribution of people sending in their records of where they saw a particular fungus, we're starting to put together quite comprehensive maps of where different fungi are so we can work out not only their distribution but whether those distributions are changing due to perhaps urbanisation or perhaps climate change or fire or whatever. But also the great thing is we now have a global Fungal Initiative, where people can nominate species that they consider might be at risk of extinction or under threat for some reason, and it's quite an involved process to nominate a species because you have to have a good idea about its life history and distribution, other things about it. But things are changing, Amy. We asked, They are starting to get into our consciousness and be incorporated within our conservation and monitoring programs. So I think it's a, a really great time. And I think people, the best thing people can do is actually contribute that knowledge, get involved in our naturalists. And if you saw a particular fungus, take a photo, make a little description, upload it, get it identified. And then that becomes a dot on the map that tells us about where our Australian fungi growing.
0: Now, Alison, I did want to mention to those listening that they can actually join you out in the field. What would you recommend people do? sure look if you
1: want to go out foraging or foray recording fungi learn to identify them then getting out in the field is the best way and that's why i would suggest coming out on a foray with me then we learn the basics of identifying fungi or if you're more interested in eating fungi i've got various events where i give a talk over a mushroom inspired dinner for example i've got one coming up in beechworth at the provenance so if you're interested in the, the more culinary stories and that end of fungi if you're interested in the science i've got some surveys going on up in new south wales for example at mount in and Orange or we actually go out and learn the techniques for surveying fungi or so if you're a regen farmer or a permaculturalist I've got some called Dirt Matters that focus more so on the role of fungi in soil and how we encourage fungi back into our farms and gardens so, so I'm trying to cover a broad range of different interests and hopefully there's something there that people might like to attend.
0: I want to say a big thank you, Alison, you've been so generous to share your expertise and also pass on my thanks to Tom May, who no doubt is such a wonderful person to have as a colleague and a friend. So uh, yeah, congratulations on this book, which really does contribute so much to the field and I hope that people can pick it up. It's called Wild Mushrooming, A Guide for Foragers, and it's been published by CSIRO Publishing.
1: Thanks so much, Amy, and thank you
0: for all the great
1: work you do in bringing fungi into people's consciousness.
0: I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.